Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting alongside Jeff Gannon, today here with the Focus Compounding Podcast, ready to go over some business and talk about some fun stuff that mm-hmm. we like love to talk about, which is stocks and investing. Jeff, how's it going over there? Very well. How's it going with you? It is going great going great. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. If you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo that he sends out, or you want to become a member, sign up using the podcast promo code if you like to save $10, and that'll take $10 off of the monthly price. Also, if you want to get um, free stuff from Mm -hmm. us, become a free member. Go to Focus Compounding, and you'll see a place to um, do that. And All you have to do is enter in your email, Mm -hmm. and you become a free member. So, And there's going to be content on there, and there is content on there, so it's a lot of fun. So from our last week's podcast, we talked a lot about our research process or our research pipeline, and inadvertently in talking about that, we're also going over five different categories that we like to think through when um, analyzing a company. And surprisingly, we got a lot of emails and people um, DMing me just sort of Mm -hmm. asking a lot of questions about it. So I figured we could just spend a podcast just talking about that. Okay. Um, one thing that we added last week to the list from the prior weeks was, um, is the stock overlooked? So for everybody that isn't familiar with this, every time we look at a company, we have about five filters that we like to go through um, to sort of rank the stock, if you will. And the first one is, is the stock overlooked? So if it's not overlooked, we're not even going to look at it because our firm focused on overlooked stocks, which we define as just off the bean path type of stocks, mm-hmm. spinoffs, illiquid stocks, illiquid microcaps, stocks emerging from bankruptcy, net nets, right. um, companies like that. Uh, but so is the stock overlooked? Do I understand the business? Is it safe? Is it good? And is it cheap? Right. And obviously, if you don't understand the business, it doesn't matter if it's safe. Is it good or is it cheap? We just kind of go on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, too hard pile. So I thought, though, we should just spend some time just sort of chatting about that. And maybe people can add these filters to their own, um, you know, sort of investor toolkit. Um, and we could use it to talk about Residuo, which is a stock that you are going to also rewrite up for the stock, or for the website, which you have written up in the past. Yeah. If you're listening to this, then it's already up. Correct. And that The ticker. revisit, I should say. It's already been... I've written about this originally for the website a while ago. But I'm revisiting on these five points. Yeah. And that, that article is actually already up for members now. Mm-hmm. And the ticker is R-E-Z-I. Yes. Cool. So is the stock overlooked? I kind of just hit on that a little bit. Right. But maybe you just kind of want to go over that and what, how you think about it. Sure. So is the stock overlooked? So for Residio specifically, it's a spinoff. So that's why we would have um, looked into it. And when I first wrote it up, it was a planned spinoff from Honeywell. It hadn't actually happened yet. Um, in this case, well, uh, I talk about it in the uh, revisit. I would say that uh, there's three ways that I can score something: either no, maybe, or yes. And in this case, I would say maybe. It meets our criteria of being overlooked, which is that it's a spinoff. So that's one of the things that we would uh, consider buying for the manager accounts as a spinoff. So it qualifies technically. But I would say, compared to a lot of things that we own or might own, it's not particularly overlooked because this is a company with um, after the spinoff a over $2 billion market cap. Yeah. Um, 
So it's going to be on a lot of people. It does analyst radars. calls. Yeah, yeah, they did an analyst call where there were some analysts on it. They might not be the biggest analysts around, but there there were plenty of analysts who will cover it now. Things like that. So uh, there are stocks that are very overlooked, which would be ones that are more illiquid that don't communicate um, with earnings calls, things like that. Uh, some dark stocks, plenty of more overlooked ones. So um, this is at uh, for a two or three billion dollar company, it's probably pretty overlooked and in the first year you could kind of say any stock might be overlooked if it's a spinoff because there's obviously a lot of people who own Honeywell who might just sell this stock right away yeah. when they get the spinoff yeah. mm-hmm. and um, so it fits in the maybe category because right. although it is a spinoff it is I guess in that two billion dollar range if it was yeah. now if it was less than a billion like let's say 500 million it would probably be 100% yes it's an overlooked stock right so the two things are it's a this is a liquid stock that's pretty big two or three billion dollars yeah. and also uh, management um, sort of has an investor relations department. Basically, yeah, they sure. you know they put out a presentation, they do earnings calls, they um, they sort of do they do uh, some form of guidance, telling people that like their previous guidance was too low, things like that. So those are all things that are very common among very big stocks. Yeah, but uh, among the a lot of the stocks that we own or might own, they don't do guidance. There's no analyst calls. Um, there's just really no investor relations department at all. Yeah, and I guess to sort of demonstrate a little bit more you wrote up an article on virtue motors which is a right. company that's on the london stock exchange right right yeah. and um you even said that it's still a maybe even though the company had a 200 million dollar market cap Correct. but because mm-hmm. it wasn't a spin-off it didn't necessarily fall in but i guess it could yeah. because it, that's a micro cap i mean how we define it, it. is it is yeah. uh, it's basically a micro cap because if you adjust for the currency exchange rate it's about a 200 million dollar yeah. stock in, in the u.s and it's on um aim uh it's like 150, 150 million pounds yeah yeah so so it's on an exchange in the uk that is for um smaller companies and and um uh, more overlooked companies would be on that exchange but it is uh, in the car dealer business, and that's one of the things I would look for for overlooked. What tends to happen with overlooked stocks is um, they're in an industry where you don't have a lot of analysts covering things there. Sure. So the issue there is um, car dealers are very well covered. And you see this a lot with um, stocks that are overlooked tend to be in industries that are sort of niche industries or something yeah. um, and much less likely to be in things that uh, everyone covers. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I just if they're a leader in a really small industry or something, that's much more likely to be overlooked. Like we talked about Tandy. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that just doesn't get coverage or something. Or, um, uh, we've talked before on this podcast about Breeze Eastern a while ago, um, which uh, was a helicopter rescue hoist business, and that's just an industry that people don't even know exists, right? So those sorts of things are more overlooked. Got it. Cool. I think that's a pretty good. Uh, and for us, if it doesn't, because I guess the way our firm is structured, right. if we if it's not overlooked, we don't even take a look at it. And so if right. you want to sort of follow that, obviously, but if not, these next four are probably the most important for yeah. you. And I should say on the overlooked, basically for us, anything we look at compared to most people is overlooked. Yeah. Right. Because any, I'm saying that uh, Residio, which is a spinoff, is a maybe overlooked. But to most people, any spinoff is sort of automatically, well, that's more overlooked stuff. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Next one. Do I understand the business? Right. So when you think about that, how does the company earn cash flow? How do they make money? The types right. of customers that they have. Um, what else do you like to think about it? Customer behavior. Why does the customer uh, make the decisions that they make? That's the most important part of it of all. Um, so it would be like uh, in the case of Residio, which is Honeywell home stuff. Um, there's two different customers, basically. Well, they have 
there's three different customers. There's two parts of the business. One is a distribution business and um, one is a products business. In the products business, they make some things that are that are put in your home mm-hmm. and some uh, that are put in your home by uh, uh, installers for like basic things like thermostats and stuff. Yeah. But then they're other, under the Honeywell name. But then there's other ones that are put in by companies like ADT and uh, those things under the name. So it would be under the ADT name. So the question there, the biggest question about it, do I understand the business is like, do I understand why ADT would choose a Residio? Do I understand why a contractor would choose Residio and not choose uh, someone else? And then in the distribution business, like why um, uh, would you sell through there versus other things? How big are they compared to other competitors? Things like that. Uh, and the economics of it is like basically sort of a DuPont analysis kind of thing, which is asset turns and margins and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, it's like assessing the moat. I was just going to say, so do you think it's like, thinking about like the moat and if it has a moat yeah that's what most people talk about yeah to me the most important thing is needing to understand why the um customer suppliers people who influence the returns in the business make the decisions on what factors do they consider it do you want to just go i think it'd be good to name off some forms of moat like think first things that come to mind for me like high switching costs um patents contracts network Mm -hmm. effects shelf space brand yeah um brands um you know economies of scale etc right And things that are closer to the customer, uh, to the end consumer, uh, are usually going to score higher in terms of me being able to understand them. Yeah. And things that are shorter term and um, le- therefore less cyclical are usually going to be easier for me to understand. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be harder for me to uh, uh, understand, um, you know, a company that is um, like a, a good example of something that'd be really hard for me to understand is a company, let's say, that sells equipment to be used in mines. Right. So that'd be something that's really hard because it can be put off for many years. I may not know where we are in the cycle, things like that. Yeah. I think with Greenbrick Partners, we sort of said, I may understand uh, the area that they're in really well and things like that. But as an industry, home builders are a little hard to understand. Sure. They're very cyclical. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a good one. Um, so if you don't understand the business, again, you probably should just pass on it. Yeah. In the case of Residio, I gave it a uh, yes. Yes. Do understand the business. Cool. Yeah. Is it safe? Yeah. Uh, so is it safe? So we should say, is it safe really means, uh, is the stock safe? So we should differentiate between the stock, the common stock, and um, the business as a whole. So the common stock, you're um, behind all the bondholders and and other people who would um, be owed money by the company. So a big thing is, what's the credit risk here? Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously the stock is more dangerous uh, than any bonds. Like so, uh, So one thing that I like to do uh, obviously, is just look for are their credit ratings. Yes. So has Moody's or S&P or Fitch uh, rated any You can just do that by did. a simple Google search yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And they usually will give explanations of why they rate it the way they do. Mm-hmm. I think in a previous podcast, we talked about BWX Technologies, which I said is safe, um, but that their uh, debt is not rated particularly high. Um, and some of the reasons why is that they have a fair amount of debt, but also issues like uh, the credit ratings firms do things like how diversified they are well they have mo- they get most of their money from one customer the u.s government and from a very small number of product lines with them so that would like uh that would hurt them there uh maybe more than i would um say that they were risky because of i'd say that customer is like a safer customer than most mm-hmm. you know um so the case of residio is interesting because they have these sort of uh legacy liabilities that we didn't talk that much about uh, so when they spun off from Honeywell, 
They have environmental liabilities. Honeywell has environmental liabilities. Residio does not. And this I've seen written up sometimes where people get wrong. Um, Residio is going to pay for them. So they're going to pay $140 million a year mm-hmm. uh, to Honeywell, which is intended to cover these liabilities. But they're capped, and the liabilities remain with Honeywell. So there are no legal liabilities that Residio has, just that they would have to pay this $140 million if Honeywell has to pay that amount or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different in terms of the safety because it means you're never going to have to pay $200 million or $300 million or something. It's also a little different in terms of the safety of insolvency because if you read about uh, what cases Honeywell wouldn't be paid, Honeywell wouldn't be paid in certain cases where it would cause um, Residio to, to violate certain debt covenants and things like that. So it's a little bit safer than a bond in that Honeywell's not as well protected as a bondholder would be. Yeah. Um, and I would add also after thinking through – is the company safe on like the debt side or yeah. like the rating side? I would also think like through like the product side, like how durable is everything? Absolutely. So like, are the products durable? And then you could always think like, have the company has it always existed? Have mm-hmm. there been challenges in the past? And what was that based on? Basically, think about like, is it going to continue in the future, or like, is it a fad? Absolutely, yeah. Is yeah. it a fad? Is a really great question to mm-hmm. ask. And that's those sorts of things that we're talking about is why I would consider BWX Technologies to be safer than maybe some credit ratings mm-hmm. agencies would say. Because I would just say that the the business is so safe, um, the the products are so safe uh, in terms of the need for uh, them thirty or forty years down the road. But that doesn't mean that the company is necessarily safe. So you always have to be careful about that. A, a company that could be uh, a very good business can be loaded up with a lot of debt and become uh, really dangerous that sure. way. Yeah. Uh, I own stock in Weight Watchers, which we were confident would survive, but we we're not confident that the common stockholders. Uh, would not be wiped out because that company had a huge amount of debt relative to its free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So, and we could talk a little bit about like the amounts that would be safe normally. Sure. So, as a rule, I would say there there are some metrics that you can use. One is the F score, which is not going to really help with predicting bankruptcy risk or something, but it's just a general quality. It's a checklist, uh, zero to nine, which will give you an idea of um, whether the company is. Uh, uh, safer. It's meant to be used with uh, a low price to book type screen. Mm-hmm. And so companies with high F scores and low price to book would generally be good investments for, uh, compared to companies with low price to book and low F score. Yeah. But and- the one people usually use is the Altman Z score, which does predict mm-hmm. bankruptcy in the near term. Um, the other, yeah. You could also look at like debt to EBITDA. Exactly. Yeah. Which as a rule, I'd say three times. Yeah, I was going to say that you want to, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to. So, Our minds uh, think a little bit of like, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So, three times, I'd say three times debt to EBITDA. Um, if you exceed that amount as a general rule, it'll be different depending on, you know, obviously utilities and railroads and things are different. But if you're exceeding three times debt to EBITDA, you might start to have problems with. Um, being able to borrow on sort of normal terms from banks and things. And it's good to also check, you know, like what the industry norm is. Right. Like, come, you know, take like the closest five peers and see what their yeah. debt EBITDAs are and understand if it's more or less or why. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, so, and in general, the things that assure you of the most safety are uh, total absence of liabilities. So very low liabilities relative to the size of the company. Um constantly positive and large free cash flows yeah um but like positive free cash flow every year things like that and then also um very very high customer retention rates and stable pricing mm-hmm. so the things that so you reverse those and that's the danger which is does the price of your product vary a lot that then you're less safe do you um not retain customers then you're less safe 
and then also issues of um, uh, just in general, if you have uh, big changes in, in cash flow of how much of your earnings you actually turn to cash. Yeah. We always talk about, I mean, and you could look for this if they talk about like the customer retention rate, that's probably one, one of the top variables I look for, I'd say. Yeah. So like, a good, and then the pretty good, predictability of that as well right and you could you know see compare this year to past years yeah so like of stocks that we own or have owned i would say i'm um, like uh computer services is probably yeah. an example of a very safe company because it generally has no debt it has like very high customer retention because banks don't generally change their core processor and um and it just it has positive cash flow every year for 20 some years you can look back in the history so any sort of software company and things like that yeah for um, people listening to this probably the greatest example is like a, a company that's similar to like microsoft or something is usually a company that's very safe whereas a company that's like um a big steel company or something would be the kind of thing that would be potentially less safe than it might appear on the earnings basis yeah cool so that uh, company gets a uh maybe Residio gets a maybe with it very much verging on no, not safe. So yeah. it was between those no and maybe, and I said maybe. Cool. All right. Next one, is it good? So the way we think about this, you could think through like the returns on capital, return mm-hmm. on incremental capital, margins, mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that. But I always think about in probably terms of returns on capital yeah. of, or so, some form of it, whether that's ROIC, ROE, right. whatever. Mm-hmm. So the one that uh, Joel Greenblatt used with magic formula is very popular. And I use a measure that's similar to that, which is basically uh, earnings before interest and taxes divided by net tangible assets. Um, in terms of long-term predictability of a business, the better one is probably gross profit divided by total tangible assets. Um, that tends to be most stable uh, long-term in terms of predicting things. The issue with using EBIT and EBITDA, and I wrote something about this on the um, website a long, long time ago, is that it has uh, volume issues so that if comp- so certain companies have very, very high fixed costs and so a small decline in revenue could cause them to not have good results then. Um, generally, asset-like companies are good and you want a company that grows. Um, because we've talked about that before, I get a lot of emails from people talking about companies that uh, have high returns on capital. Yeah. But they have no growth at all, and they might be investing that capital now in things that have lower returns. Um, so a good example here is uh, one part of Residio's business that I talked about is very high return. It has very, very high gross profit margin, uh, very, very high uh, gross profit margins, and then it has it also has decent uh, asset turns, meaning that sales and assets are about equal. Mm-hmm. So it's about one. Uh, so in that case, if you have let's say a sixty or fifty percent. Uh, gross profit margin and then sales and assets are about equal then obviously you're getting 50 or 60 percent gross return uh, on assets which is generally a very good sign uh the reason why i mentioned gross asset uh the gross profit divided by assets which is um it takes away the scale issue because generally even a business that will be good when it's really really big will still look good on a gross profitability basis uh, early on in its lifespan. Whereas some companies um, that don't have particularly good uh, returns early on, people will claim will when they have scale. So a lot of tech companies and things, you'll see this where people will say when they get big, their returns will be good. So to check that, make sure you look at is the gross profitability already really high? Because even before they start turning net profits, they should have really good uh, gross profitability. Sure. And then I would also add 
some things that people can do that's outside of the 10k okay. when they think through like the quality of the business is if you can get anything um like ranked in the industry do they have mm-hmm. any some sort of like awards um you know they could look on Glassdoor to read about like the company culture sure. um pretty much read phil fisher's 15 yeah. point checklist mm-hmm. uh you could just google it and you'll find it and it's also in his book uh common stocks on common profits yes and that's a pretty good i think measure of quality as well that's very good measure yeah F- using the general phil fisher approach for the culture for the management all that stuff is a yeah. good thing to look at for is the company good mm-hmm Cool. Yeah. And then what did you give them? I gave them a maybe, but it's a maybe verging on uh, yes. The reason why I said maybe is uh, there's no evidence that the that the parts of this business, which uh, ended up being Residio now, so the pieces that were there in uh, owned by Honeywell and by a company Honeywell merged with, uh, have actually increased their size at all in about 25 years. So going back to the later 90s to today, the company seems to, the business overall seems to be the same size or shrunk a little in real terms. So mm-hmm. it didn't keep up with inflation. Yeah. And we talked about that once before with um, Hamilton Beach Brands. Yes. We're going back 20 or 30 years. We said, I'm not sure that they've kept pace with inflation. And there's explanations for why that might be. Like you have NAFTA during that period and stuff like that. And Honeywell probably moved a lot of manufacturing into Mexico. Um, so it's not terrible, but... It is a sign that if a company, so the company on all the qualitative basis definitely has a high return on capital. But if you can't keep, if you can't grow at all in real terms, then it's hard to tell if you are truly a good business. For one thing, it means that any capital they have can't really go back in the business to grow it. And for another, you need to keep pace with inflation, really. So I would say every measure says they're a good business, but I just don't have evidence that they've grown at all in real terms in the last uh, quarter of a century. So I say maybe, but I think most people would say, yes, it's a good business. Certainly using like the green blad approach, it's a good business. Yeah. High return capital. Cool. So, so far we have, is the stock overlooked? Do I understand the business? Is it safe? Is it good? Mm-hmm. And then the last one we have is, is it cheap? Yes. And in this case, uh, there's lots of ways that you can look at that and it depends on the industry. I, I've gotten a bunch of emails from people saying, um, actually, it's interesting. I get a bunch of emails from people saying the same sort of thing about different metrics, which are like, I got one recently. Someone said, why are investors obsessed with price to free cash flow? Shouldn't they look at um, like earnings or something like sure. that? Right. Because you're reinvesting that cash flow to grow the business. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then someone else will say, why are they obsessed with uh, PE? Shouldn't they be that they're looking at these other things? Do you think that that the price of free cash flow comes because Buffett's quote, like the amount of cash you could take out of a business? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I also think that it was once a very important in metric. Yeah. Um, as was price to book when Graham talked about it. Sure. Uh, was a more important metric uh, years ago. So in the U.S., we've now had cash flow statements for public companies for um, – Let's see, about 30 years, maybe 32 years now. I don't remember the exact year they kicked in, but um, it would have been late 80s, and certainly every company is reporting it by the 90s. So you have a long period now where you have um, cash flow statements um, that people are used to seeing. For, for uh, companies outside the U.S., it's been shorter. Um, before that, there wasn't cash flow reporting to investors so uh, that's a big difference. 
um, the quality of the earnings. It's really that's it. Is it's the quality of the earnings. Sure. So um, I guess what I would say is in terms of like, is it cheap? The thing that I've said in reply to those emails is the best metric is for um, earnings for price to something is the thing that matters the most in predicting the future. And that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, they just kind of slap a PE multiple on it right. and call it a day. Yeah. 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 So it's what matters the most is one of them. So that's subjective measure. Yeah. But then the problem is that there's two other things that matter, which is what management is manipulating the least and what other investors are caring about the least. Mm-hmm. The problem is, say, price to free cash flow. Price to free cash flow is an amazing way to buy stocks if no other investors ever look at it, yeah. then it would be great. If management isn't trying to uh, run the business at all for cash flow, uh, what they're reporting to you, then it's great. The reason why earnings were are often overrated is because, like, go back to the 1990s. Uh, management is obsessed with what they report in earnings, and other investors are obsessed with it. Yeah. So there's no advantage that way. You want to find something that works well in predicting the future, but that you are paying attention to more than other investors. It has to be something you know that they don't know or that you're acting on that they're not acting on. Well, it's kind of like with Frost when you mm-hmm. value it based upon the deposits, right? Yes. Had, I mean, I've never, I never really see people value banks in, with that metric. Right. Know? But if you look at what happened with banks, what happened was exactly that, which is if you had valued on the deposits, you would be valuing them as similarly today as a few years ago when rates were zero. Mm-hmm. But what happened in the market is a lot of people revalued banks higher when interest rates went up. But it wasn't really a surprise that interest rates would eventually go up. That's something that you could predict. So same thing with oil or anything else. If you're investing in an industry when it's really, um, the, the in that case, the price of money sort of was low. Yeah, sure. In this case, so like if you're looking at, let's say, oil, if the price of oil is low, then you don't want to invest on the basis of earnings in oil companies at that moment. Yeah. You want to invest on the basis of reserves and things that in the future will be worth a lot more. Mm-hmm. So... It, I use lots of different measures. Um, earnings less than most people do. I don't look at the PE that much. And um, and it's more, I mean, they're able to manipulate it more too, right? Sure. So you wrote an article a long time ago. I don't know if it was for Focus Compounding or Guru Focus, but you okay. were talking about learning to move up the income statement. Yeah, that was one of the first things I wrote for Focus Compounding. Okay, yeah. so instead of thinking about it on, on the terms of free cash flow or net income or even EBIT, you, you were using it as, as gross profit right. because it's it's hard mm-hmm. to manipulate gross profit. Yes. So it, it's that um, it, that it can be harder to manipulate certain things is true, one. And um, there's some numbers that are easier to manipulate and some that are harder to manipulate. And then also what investors are looking at. One of the great things about looking at something like gross profit is no one else is looking at gross sure, profit, yeah. right? Um, we had a write-up of uh, a company that was a, a, a box. It was a company that was losing money. And I thought it was a really good write-up because it looked at the likely lifetime value of the customer and saying, okay, so they have this many customers. What would these customers eventually be worth? How much does it have to grow to drive this kind of value? Things like that. Because there's a lot of sales and marketing that goes into initially getting the customer. And then there's a lot of cash flow that comes later. So what you always want to do for is it cheap is look at the thing that drives the economic value long term. So like we talked about Maui land and pineapple. Maui land and pineapple, you want to look at how many acres of land that has all the permissions it needs to be built on and stuff do they own? Okay, it's like eight or 900. 
And then you try to talk to some people and say, okay, how much is that, that those acres worth in West Maui? And if they say, okay, it's worth half a million dollars each and they own 800 acres, then that's worth $400 million or whatever, right? Yeah. So that's how you do it. There's no... PE doesn't help you there. No. Price to book doesn't help you because no. the, the the land is on the books at prices from about 100 years yeah, ago. So it's held at like nothing, like 5 million bucks or something. Yeah. Not even. Yeah. Yeah. And we talked about a timberland company that we own where some of the land was given, where they got some of the land even earlier than that. Um, so in that case, you might look at it, you might try to figure out what timberland per acre is generally worth in that state or in that region or whatever. Do you think people make it almost too comp they're just calculating too much and yes. instead of just thinking about it in, yeah. a ra- in like a holistic type of way i mean yeah. how hard is that to say okay they have 800 or 900 acres right. let's find out how much each acre is worth yes. and then kind of using that as your starting point i guess you could say yeah i think that's true and uh Did, why is that is that because i mean valuation for a lot of people can be very tough is it because like the finance textbooks you think or what I think so. I also think, I mean, I just talked to some people recently about this issue where I think people often feel like they should be doing some work and they like the situations where the people are told there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. Yeah. And doing the work, doing all that calculation feels like you're doing a lot of the important things, but it's like working harder, not working smarter. Yeah. So the, the like Warren Buffett approach is, okay, what would a um, private owner uh, pay for this thing? Like he talks about with the Washington post. Um, and it's true. You could. There are situations where you could say, okay, someone would pay more for this. I, I've talked a little bit before about a long time ago. I did not buy a stock uh, called DreamWorks Animation, and a lot of people find it odd that I said that that was probably my the mistake that like my biggest mistake in the sense that's most unforgivable. It because the the truth is the reason I didn't buy it I feel is just that it didn't quite look incredibly cheap on PE or EV to EBITDA or price to book. Yeah, it was pretty close on price to book. Um, it was not overpriced on PE or EV to EBITDA. It wasn't especially high priced, and it was pretty low on price to book. So it was pretty low, but it wasn't clearly it didn't trip any of those levels as being a clear value stock, right? So um, it might be a little undervalued. Those things would say. But I knew from looking at what they had in their library and just – I knew that if you ha- – you, I knew that there were – let's say you could pick eight studios or something and bring them together and have them bid for this company, uh, that the bids that you would get were higher than what the market price was at that moment. Sure. Right? And it ended up being sold for a little and more. And that's a private value way of thinking about it. Right. Yeah, and I just I knew that Universal and Fox and um, and Sony would pay uh, would bid more, uh, and Disney if it would be allowed and stuff would bid more um, than the market was was pricing that stock at, and that's what you want to do. So like, is it cheap? Is is this company selling in the market for less than a another company in the industry would buy it for, or a private uh, investor would pay for all of it? Like, take Timberland. Well, some people invest in Timberland. Yeah. Would they like to own all this Timberland is to be part of their portfolio at less than the market value is at? Well, if so, then this is a uh, then it's cheap. Yeah. And so that was the mistake with DreamWorks and it's just a simple thing of asking, okay, well, is it cheap versus what other people would pay for it? Yeah. And that's usually the best way of doing it. And um 
it, that's the approach that I would use now for obviously for giant companies and things people will say, well, they're not really going to be merged with someone else. Yeah, sure. So how do you value it? But you can do it the same sort of way. I mean, even if you have to value Berkshire Hathaway, you can say, okay, well, what if you sort of broke up the pieces and said, how much would someone pay for, mm-hmm. you know, how much would progressive pay um, to merge with Geico? How much would, you know, and go down the list? No, I think that is, I think that's great. So is it, is the stock overlooked? Do you understand the business? Is it safe? Is it good? And is it cheap? Yeah. Now, what do you think is the most important one? Uh, do you understand the do business? Do you understand the business is yeah. the number one. However, the, the the two most important are, is it overlooked and do you understand the business? Mm-hmm. But I should say this checklist is for the early stages. So sometimes in the later stages and stuff, things we didn't even talk about here, like growth and stuff, can matter because you can learn with certainty that something's going to grow, and then yeah. that's great. But in the early stages, you can't know that when you're first looking at a business. The two that are most helpful are uh, do you understand it and is it overlooked? And sometimes all you know right away is might it be overlooked and do you feel like it's something that you could understand? Mm-hmm. So like um, we talked about like spinoffs that are coming up and stuff. So we mentioned on a previous podcast uh, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. So it is a spinoff. You could probably understand um, uh, sports-related things, but – Everyone is looking at it, mm-hmm. so it's not overlooked. So you'd say, okay, I don't know if that's the one I want to zero in on right yeah. away. But you could say uh, you could look at um, insurance auto auctions or something. And that's let's being say, spun off from KAR. Yeah, and let's say that you, uh, like I did, wrote a thing on, on Copart and stuff, which is a competitor. Well, then I would say, oh, well, that is something that I feel like I know I understand the business, so yeah. check on that. And then is it overlooked? Well, the competitor and this company aren't very cheap looking right away, but still, when you're talking about wrecked cars and things for for um, uh, being auctioned off and things like that, that's not the same thing as talking about the uh, New York Knicks, mm-hmm. right? In terms of the attention it's going to attract, so that tends a little bit more to be like, oh, that might be something I put close to the top of my list. Sure. It's yeah. a little more off the beaten path, and yet it's something that I feel like I could understand. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And that's why we're going to look at it, right? We have looked yeah, at it. Well, we looked at IA a long time ago. Yeah, we'll look at like, what, over a, a year, bunch right? of those different ones. Yeah, I'd, there's not a huge list of spinoffs that we're interested in for the next year, so I think we can cover most of them. Mm-hmm. Cool. I think that's uh, that's good. So for people that are interested, I'm going to put that in the show notes, and maybe I'll add some notes on it with mm-hmm. it as well on sort of how we think about it. Um, but So definitely check the show notes. Do you have anything else that you want to add to those five topics? No, I, uh, depending on when this comes out, you may, uh, if you are a free member, you'd be able to read a memo about this topic, about how I rate them specifically. Cool. And if you are a premium member, then you actually see these ratings because they're going to be part of the watch list. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Alrighty. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today. Um, if you do join, like Jeff just talked about as a premium member, you do get a weekly watch list from him as well, where he, um, sort of outlines all these stocks that he's currently interested in ones that he plans on researching in the future. And then if you do become a free member, you get a weekly memo from Jeff. But if you're a premium member, you also get that as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of the difference. So if you are interested in that, go to focuscompounding.com and sign up there. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, at focusedcompound is my handle. Let's chat, DM me, <laughs> let's talk about stocks. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. 
If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.